Welcome to the Space Witch Podcast, where we talk about what's happening in outer space and witch stories. I'm your host, Layla Martin, and just remember, there are no witches in outer space. I was thinking about unified field theory. So let's start there. Um, What is unified field theory if you don't know already? um, Unified field theory refers to the attempt in physics to create a single theoretical framework that can describe and unite all the fundamental forces and particles of nature. So it's really cool. It's a very cool thing to think about. I um, love theoretical physics, and so the four fundamental forces are gravity, electromagnetism, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. So think about those four things. And historically, the first successful unification was electromagnetism, which unified electric and magnetic forces, obviously, into one force, and that was described by James Clerk Maxwell in the 19th century. So thinking about unified field theory, and like, I was like, where are we at with that? What's the progress? So there's further progress in unification uh, with the development of the electroweak theory, and that's... um, Sheldon Glashow, Abdesalam, and Steven Weinberg in the 20th century, which unified the electromagnetic force and the weak nuclear force at high energy levels, which is super exciting. It was a significant step towards a unified field theory, and it left the gravity and the strong nuclear force still unaccounted for. So the ultimate goal of unified field theory it's often referred to as theory of everything, capital T, little o, big E, uh, would be to incorporate all four fundamental forces into a single framework, providing a coherent understanding of the laws that govern the universe. And one of the leading candidates for such a theory is string theory, which proposes that the fundamental constituents of the universe are not point-like particles, but rather tiny vibrating strings. And another approach is loop quantum gravity, which attempts to reconcile the principles of quantum mechanics with general relativity, the theory that describes gravity. I'm sorry if that's like I'm being Captain Obvious, dumbing down things. But um, so despite, you know, all of these efforts, a complete and experimentally verified unified field theory it has yet to be achieved. And, you know, one of the main challenges lies in integrating the theory of general relativity, which describes the gravitational force and large-scale structure of the universe, with, co- with quantum mechanics, which describes the three other forces and the behavior of particles, like, at the smaller scale. Well, not that smaller scale, the smallest scales. And um, the difficulty arises because general relativity and quantum mechanics are based on fundamentally different principles, and their direct combination obviously leads to mathematical inconsistencies. But I just think that the pursuit of unified field theory, it's one of the most important and challenging areas in research and theoretical physics, and, you know, it's it's about advancing our understanding Um So I was thinking about the obstacles and, you know, where we're at and um, particle accelerators. Uh, I was in Geneva, Switzerland, and that's where um, CERN is. And CERN is, if you're not familiar with it, it's the... um, European European Organization for Nuclear Research, and it's where the um, Large Hadron, I'm not sure if it's Hadron or Hadron Collider, whatever, it's the LHC, it's in Geneva, and that's where theorists and, um, you know, different 
experimentalists are involved in the application and development of theories that could point toward a unified framework, especially through the discovery of new particles or quantum gravity phenomenon. And there's this really cool place also called the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, and that's in Canada, or Canada, I like to say Canada, Canada. Um, that's a leading center for theoretical physics research, and they focus on understanding fundamental physics, including quantum gravity, cosmology, and particle physics. And then we have here in the USA, the Institute for Advanced Study, which is in Princeton. And um, the IAS, they have been a site of foundational progress in various aspects of theoretical physics with a recorded number of considerable work towards unified physics theories. And then also up north, we have Stanford, Stanford Institute for Theoretical Physics. Um, and then obviously, to do Caltech, California Institute of Technology. And we have MIT, both universities heavily involved in research related to quantum mechanics and gravity. I applied at a job at Caltech and I didn't get it. And um, I'm working on a class pitch right now for Stanford. I did a class pitch for Harvard, um, Division of Continuing Education on both of them because I will never go back to Cambridge. <laughs> it's, it's so cold. I joke that when I went to um, school in Cambridge is when I learned why people wear underwear. <laughs> because it was so cold in January that I thought I was going to freeze to death like a little popsicle. So I will, I'm willing to teach um, in a live classroom environment for, you know, a weekend maybe a week, but no, I'm not going to go back to Cambridge in January ever again. I literally cried because I thought that I was going to die. I was so cold when I was going to school there. And um, it just all the layers that you have to put on. And then um, when my feet would touch the floor, it was like Bambi, like sliding on ice. Like I, lit I didn't know. I wasn't joking. I could not walk there. It's like you need like those um, when I went glacier trekking in Argentina and they put those things they sound like tampons but I think they're called crampons on your feet and you're like click 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 gripping onto the ice and I'm like why would you live like this every day like it's just it's just so cold so yeah the class proposals take a long time um to hear back this Stanford one I'm sure it'll be like six months and um, so then I was, I was looking at the different technologies that are, um, at CERN right now, and it's, um, you know, obviously they're running the world's largest particle physics ex experiments and operating in different extreme conditions, and so if you want to think about superconductivity super and microelectronics and data monitoring management, um, I was looking at this thing called White Rabbit at CERN, and um, White Rabbit, they refer to it as like a parentheses WR, it's a technology developed at CERN to provide sub-nanosecond um, sub accuracy and picoseconds precision of synchronization for the LHC accelerate, accelerators chain. And so what I thought was so cool is that at CERN they developed um, WR White Rabbit as an open source hardware with primary uh, adoption by other research infrastructures with similar challenges in highly accurate synchronization of distributed electronic devices. And um, White Rabbit is currently deployed in numerous scientific infrastructures all around the world. And White Rabbit, you know, it has the potential to be commercialized and introduced into different industries, including telecommunications, financial markets, smart grids, space, and quantum computing. So then I was working on uh, this morning, you know, how could I take White Rabbit, um, I'm not going to go into the technical description, but look at this uh, technology and then apply it to a problem in space. And what would that look like? I think that 
by harnessing the precision timing capabilities of CERN's white rabbit technology that we could revolutionize monitoring and controlling of different things, the electrical grids enhancing reliability and resilience and stability, and thinking about use this technology to improve life here on Earth. Um, there's this one electrical grid resilience through this white rabbit technology that I think is interesting. And then um, advancing precision timing technology for Earth-based applications. So precision timing technology is exemplified by this white rabbit technology. It's revolutionized synchronization capabilities for space missions and particle physics experiments. And I was working on this proposal to harness the power of white rabbit technology to address terrestrial challenges and to help improve, you know, quality of life for people here on Earth. And I think by leveraging the the, the expertise that's already out there in precision timing and synchronization to help, you know, develop and further innovative solutions for critical, you know, issues here on Earth. And so, anyways, that's what I was doing this morning. I was thinking about that stuff, this proposal at Stanford, because I want to teach a class um, on space, astrofeminism as a new lens for Earth's restoration. And I was looking at the different ways that that could be applied. Um, I think that there's a, an element of nature and conservation studies. And then um, there's cultural studies, because what I've talked about in past podcasts is I'm thinking about space um, from an aspect of space culture. And then uh, climate change and sustainability, obviously, because of the... Um, you know, different satellite technology and the way that we're using space-based assets to understand what's happening here on Earth. Um, so, that's cool. Um, in space news, we have some really neat things happening. The most obvious. I try not to make the podcast too time-specific because, like, I want people to be able to go back and listen to episodes that are in the past and not feel like they're it's dated because of whatever news happened but then if I'm talking about what's happening happening in space it's pretty important to talk about um the first American lander to reach the moon in 52 years so congratulations to intuitive machines um the first commercial spacecraft to land to ever land on the surface of the moon and the first American craft to do so since NASA's final Apollo mission in 1972. So that was a big thing that happened happened yesterday. And it was a week after launching aboard a SpaceX rocket. Um, so the, the spacecraft touched down on the surface of the moon on late Thursday afternoon, which right now for me it's Friday that I'm speaking here, so it was yesterday. And the lander was designed and operated by Houston-based intuitive machines and, you know, the first commercial spacecraft to land on the moon. And I guess Stephen Altimus, the president and CEO of Intuitive Machines, he said, Houston, Odysseus has found its new home. Which is exciting. So that's one thing in space news that, that happened, recent, that's interesting. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is, I want to talk about Bridget Mendler. I'm a huge fan of what she's doing and just, I mean, I've never met her personally, but I love her story. So if you're not familiar with Bridget Mendler, she's the CEO and co-founder at Northwood. And I want to tell you a little bit about her. A lot of what I see about her on um, the news is they're talking about that sh she was on a Disney show. I never saw the show she was on. I don't know anything about that really. But I want to emphasize that Bridget... Um, was at the MIT Media Lab as a researcher and director's fellow for six years. 
and she was also at the International Bureau of Satellite Division Policy Branch uh, with the Federal Communications Commission. In addition to her PhD from MIT, she um, was co-president of the Harvard University Space Law Society, and um, she has her JD from Harvard. So there you go. I mean, bam, 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 bam. It's so refreshing to see a woman who's really, really, really brilliant and doing really cool things. So let me talk a little bit about Northwood. Um, this is according to Northwood on their own website. They're designing ground infrastructure from first principles to accelerate mass adoption of satellite technology. They have all of these different, um, they have a world-class team. They have all these different partners. Um, and they began with a question, what would the future of satellite backhaul look like if we built it from the ground up? So the story is they were on vacation at Northwood Lake and they applied their experience in SATCOM to build antennas from scratch and communicate with NOAA satellites. And this laid the foundation that they've um, built this company upon ever since. And Northwood is building a data highway between Earth and space to meet the needs of today's space industry. And right now, they're saying that this one-lane rickety road for space data needs to adapt to a 10-lane highway routing continuous traffic around the globe. And increasing data-intensive space applications are constrained by a bottleneck in throughput capacity on the ground. And so I think this is really interesting because um, it's a lot of what I was talking about and all of my research points to that we need a global space code and that we have all of these kind of one-ups in terms of the private sector. So um, things are happening, but we need more uh, infrastructure. And so this is a good way to put it, that instead of this one, one lane, you know, rickety kind of highway, we need something more sophisticated to um, help allow the traffic to go through. And in uh, Northwood is saying that they're emphasizing that the future is shared that shared infrastructure has time and, again, played a significant role in scaling communications technologies to mass adoption. And that's whether it's shared towers for cell cellular technology or shared points of presence for the Internet. And Northwood was formed in 2023 by Bridget Mendler, Griffin Cleverly, and... Shauri, Shaura Luthra, Shau, S-H-A-U, Shauria, Shauria, Shauria Luthra. And the company operates out of El Segundo, California. I left my wallet in El Segundo. Do you guys remember that song? I left my wallet in El Segundo. If you're an engineer who's excited about Northwood's mission and the opportunity to build the damn data highway, come join us. But would I have to go to El Segundo? Hmm. And I'm not an engineer. Being a space theorist is sort of like... Um, so yeah, congratulations to Bridget Mendler. And it's funny, on CNBC they're covering it, saying that she launched a satellite data startup backed by major VCs. And they start with all of this former Disney Channel star and singer... Bridget Mendler is launching a startup called Northwood Space. She's backed by venture investors, including the Founders Fund, Andreessen Horowitz, and also Capital. The vision is a data highway between Earth and space, Mendler told CNBC. And there, Northwood aims to build satellite ground stations that are designed with mass production and customer flexibility, first in mind. There's a quote that I thought was really funny. Um, is it on this article? Northwoods, um, the name of the company stems from a lake in New Hampshire where Mendler said the idea for the company originated while she was spending time with her family during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's the quote that I thought was funny. While everyone else was out making their sourdough starters, we were building antennas out of random crap that we could find at Home Depot. <laughs> 
and receiving data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration satellites. For me, why the ground side matters is because it's actually about bringing the impacts of space home to people. Wow! Yay! <laughs> Mendler added, um, cleverly emphasized that the space industry's growth means that there is now a colossal amount of data trying to travel to and from satellites. And he said, we need an approach so that these companies can get the data down reliably and in the quantities that they need. So if you want a dedicated antenna, you have to wait 18 months to get the antenna delivered, installed, and built for you. And the startup plans to target services for satellites in low Earth orbit initially for companies that don't want to spend the money to build their own ground station networks. If you're not sure about the orbital planes and what the difference of Leo, Mio, and Geo is, um, I talk about all that in a previous episode, and it's pretty interesting and relevant. So congratulations to Northwood and uh, for being the, the moon story, too. For the first time in more than five decades, Americans having returned to the moon. Yahoo! And April 8th, 2024, millions are going to witness 2024's total solar eclipse. It will be the last total solar eclipse visible for the next 20 years. So animals will behave like it's twilight. And um, that's kind of interesting. Cool. This episode of the Space Witch Podcast is brought to you by Linked Livin. Their mission is to enable people to travel more. Linked Livin is a community of trusted peer professionals and friends who rent or swap apartments with one another. With Linked Livin, you can unlock your travel potential. You can be either a host or a guest. If you're a host, it's free, completely free, and you have a vetted peer professional staying at your place versus listing it to strangers. It will help to cover your rental costs while traveling to avoid double paying. You can check the tenant's LinkedIn or social media profiles. You can get on a call or a video chat with your tenant before renting out your place. And you can have someone, you know, watering your plants or you're helping with your pets or general help or whatever while you're away. And to be a guest with Linked Living, you can rent high-quality apartments from vetted peer professionals, get access to exclusive listings. Most of Linked Living's members don't list their property elsewhere. This is really awesome. You pay two to three times below market average at hotels or with Airbnb. Low or no transaction fees. So for a 30-day free trial and only $65 per year after, you can cancel any time, no charge for 30 days, or you can invite two people and get in um, with, to link to live in uh, on them. With two people that uh, you register, you'll get a free one-year membership. But for listeners, the Space Witch podcast, I have a promo code. It is Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. And if you go to linkedlivin.com and you enter the promo code MARTIN, you'll receive a 10% discount and the standard 30-day free trial still applies. So I had a long talk with Natalie, uh, the co-founder of Linked Livin, yesterday. Super impressed. Uh, She's very sophisticated and really, really bright. It's such a cool idea. And um, I travel all over the world. I've talked about that before. And I've been to almost 70 countries by myself. Um, the, <laughs> I have great stories and I have horror stories. What I loved about Linked Living is the idea that it's a more closed group than Airbnb. Um, and that you have to be vetted in order to become a member. And then... This idea of peer professionals, so um, maybe you don't know them personally, but it's just through a, a like a warm introduction and they're 
um, yeah, vetted peer professionals. And so I would take a look at this if, you know, you want to go somewhere and uh, you're on a budget and um, you want to, or maybe you want to rent out your place. Be exciting. LinkedLivin.com. The promo code is Martin for Space Witch listeners. I was thinking about the ancient practice of magic and focusing on the roles that women traditionally held as healers and how that connects with healers, witches, women accused of witchcraft, or wise women. And I was thinking about how these roles, they often involve an understanding of, you know, herbal remedies or being a midwife or different rituals to protect or heal communities. And within this context, you know, understanding how these practices have evolved. uh, When we think about, you know, all of these different women that were accused of witchcraft and, you know, brutally murdered, these true crime stories, that's the way I think of them. Um, You think, oh, gosh, that was back in the day. It was before science and, you know, understanding and logic and how civilized we are now. Well, (laughs) not not really if if you listen to the news, if you read the news every day. Um, But I was thinking of the idea of ritual magic in our, you know, modern world and what would be some ways that, um, you know, we still practice that. And it's so obvious. So I think that sometimes things are so obvious because you are used to them, so you can't even see it, you know? Like, if you think about Santa Claus and the mythology of Santa and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny and how, you know, these different figures are rooted in various traditions and myths and how they've been adapted over time. You know, this transformation of Saint Nick into Santa Claus and the folklore traditions that have contributed to the concept of the Tooth Fairy, the pagan origins of Easter celebrations, how they've been integrated into Christian traditions. But who really is creating this magic? I was thinking about women's role in sustaining ritual magic and you know how women play a key role in keeping these modern rituals alive and in many households women are primarily responsible for the enactment of these traditions from coming up here you know in a a little while hiding the easter eggs outside and then you know filling christmas stockings and i feel like this really mirrors this ancient role of women as keepers of Um, domestic and community rituals and I want to emphasize that it's not just women Um, I'm thinking of in terms of more female-centric not necessarily tied to men or women because of course there are men who really like you know putting easter eggs out there and setting the stockings (laughs) out by the fire Um, so I have to you know clarify that So when we think about this enduring connection between women and the practice of ritual magic, it's not really just this relic of the past, but it's a vibrant part of our lives as, you know, in this Western culture. And I think it's astonishing when we pause and consider that the magic we grew up with, you know, tales of Santa and these secretive exchanges with the tooth fairy and whimsical hunts for easter eggs they're not just childhood fantasies but they're threads to like a much older history of magic that women have been weaving for centuries so when we think about you know this tradition of leaving out cookies and milk for santa you know this practice echoes ancient offerings made to spirits and deities as a way to ensure protection and blessing the household and the figure of Santa himself has roots in various traditions including you know generous Saint Nick and British Father Christmas and that's you know blending together the sacred and the secular into a figure of magical benevolence that goes around the globe in one single night 
And who is it that's ensuring that these traditions are carried out in homes around the world? Well, it can be both parents or grandparents or family friends, but in many cases, in most cases, it's women acting as the architects of magical experiences. If we think about the Tooth Fairy, you know, it's a relatively modern creation, um, but let's trace that back to the medieval practice of burying children's lost teeth to spare them hardship in the afterlife. And so this ritual is formed into a playful exchange of teeth for tokens. It continues to be a rite of passage for children, and it's overseen by the careful planning of maybe it's both parents, but very often it's mothers who are tenderly swapping the tooth under the pillow for a coin or a note, weaving magic into the fabric of childhood. Helicopter? That's like a, a an army helicopter or something passing right now. Do you hear that? I mean, it's like a legit... Like the house, my house is shaking. It's like, are we in like a Call of Duty? I feel like I'm in a video game here. Are you like, is everything okay? I wonder if all those helicopters, how it affects the birds, because the crows are flying around like crazy, like. It's obviously disruptive to them if the helicopter is shaking the entire house. So, Easter is another example of this. Um, the Easter bunny, obviously the origins are pre-Christian fertility symbols, and it's now this, like, you know, sweets and eggs and symbols of new life and rebirth. And here again we find the hands of women, maybe men, but mostly women at work, dying eggs and hiding them for children to find, which, you know, can be seen as a nod to the renewal of life that spring brings and rooted in ancient celebrations of fertility and growth. And through these examples, I'm, you know, trying to help shine a light or demonstrate how these traditions carried um, forward by women, they're not just acts of cultural observance, but I, th I think that they're forms of ritual magic. And they connect us to our ancestors and to the cycles of nature and to the very presence and essence of life itself. And these practices are so often taken for granted, um, you know, that mom is going to make the house magical for Christmas. Well, what does that entail? It's decorating, it's baking, it's the preparation of food. I don't, does anyone do Christmas cards anymore? I do, but I think I'm the last person on earth. Um, hanging the stockings, and I used to dip the, um, a big heavy boot in the ashes from the fireplace to make an outline of the path to prove that Santa came into the house. So make the boot prints and then rig jingle bells onto the roof and have like a pulley so that they could be, um, the jingle bells will sound and then the, the kids would, you know, come out of their room and then taking the, um, the kids would put carrots out for the reindeer and then having to eat the carrots to prove that the reindeers ate the carrots, but not throw the carrots away because the kids would find them in the trash and then obviously eating the Christmas cookies that were out and drinking but drinking the milk and then um, leaving the proof that Santa came and then obviously putting all the presents under the tree that are wrapped and then I would leave, um, well I still do, my, my time as Santa is, is not over. I haven't punched out my clock yet, but little trails of um, like Hershey's Kisses or little candies from the door of the bedroom to the wherever the presents are in the tree is and then um, also I think Christmas is not just in the Christmas Eve it's gosh it feels like Christmas starts um, I don't know in August now <laughs> but um, because I'm in Southern California usually around Christmas um, 
I have like a on the TV I'll put like a fireplace on the TV and then put Christmas carols on so it feels Christmas even though it's like 85 degrees outside and listening to Christmas music and watching Christmas movies and um, baking the cookies but it's more about like setting the tone for Christmas Christmas pajamas having a hot chocolate bar um, gingerbread waffles I mean there's so many different things that I do throughout that time so that there's good memories and then you know um, Easter it's the same thing of the, the bunny and hiding the eggs and then making little magical things you know within the eggs the ones that you fill up with candies and then making a candy trail and um, then I would carve a Easter basket out of a watermelon take a big watermelon and carve the basket and then take a melon baller and make the little balls of melons and the kids can help with that and it was my mother that taught me to do that the Easter basket um, and then I'd make a cake in the shape of the bunny with the coconuts and the little gumdrop things and putting out then for the grown-ups if they want to have mimosas or whatever I don't drink mimosas but um then there's quiche, and it's like the mom or the woman, the women in the family are putting together the spread so that everyone can relax and remember the good holiday, but someone has to think ahead of time of what does that look like and how do we divide the time to do that and do I have time to ball out melons and make an Easter basket filled with fruit and make sure there's fresh flowers in the house and Easter lilies and don't even get me started on what is everybody going to wear to go to mass and <laughs> they all have to look good and you know tights that are clean and that fit and shoes for every kid and Easter bonnets and it's like so much so I think that it's funny because no wonder women are experiencing time poverty particularly if they are um, tied to being a mom or, or a caregiver of children because that ritual magic that I think it's a lot of times is kind of taken for granted that it will just exist but it's women that are creating that and then like for the tooth fairy we put the tooth under the pillow but who's going to remember to give the coin or I would create a receipt a tooth receipt so it would show which tooth was lost and then give like a report on it and then have a tooth fairy number and then I'd have like glitter that I put in the little receipt and then I would try to give like so the tooth fairy did, didn't just give like a coin but it would be like I have a remember before the euro when the French had the franc and it was from the little prince you know like a special coin from somewhere in the world or a note about how important it is to brush your teeth or a little fairy, little fairy figurines, and so like, I put a lot of time into thinking about how important it, it was to be, is, I'm not done yet with being the tooth fairy, and being Santa, and Mrs. Claus, and the Easter Bunny, and what else? We don't really do St. Patrick's Day stuff, but what else is there? Christmas, Easter... So anyways, it's like this modern-day pra practitioner of, you know, magic to acknowledge the role that women play in preserving and adapting these traditions. And I think it's important also to recognize the magic that's right, you know, in our daily lives and to appreciate these rituals that mark not just this seasons in terms of the calendar, but the seasons of our lives, um, not just like as simple customs but as profound connections to this guidance and wisdom and creativity of women I mean when you think about when you were a child did anyone ever pretend to be Santa for you or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy and how did that experience shape reality and of course I'm sure everyone has a story of a horrible Christmas or the time the Tooth Fairy forgot um, because women and moms and families are not perfect, 
but I try to focus on the positive of did you ever have a good Christmas? Did you ever wake up with maybe I wanted the Cabbage Patch doll? I didn't get it because it was expensive and crazy to find, but um, I'm trying to remember if I ever had a Christmas where I woke up with like, I mean, I would wake up and get socks that were wrapped. It's <laughs> like very practical. Or like not the Barbie that was like the Barbie in the Barbie box, but like the knockoff Barbie that was called like Barbie, And like, you know, she smelled weird. Or like, I don't know. I, I, I didn't really hit it big for in terms of like gifts and stuff on Christmas. But I do remember making Christmas cookies. And I think that a lot of um, what I've done is overcompensate as a mom. So my kids have had so much of all of that good memories and magical birthday parties and stuff like that, that they don't know what it's like not to have it, which is what you want as a parent. But then the problem is they don't really appreciate it because they don't know what it's like not to have all of that. So it's hard because I think there's this tension between you definitely want your kids to have a better life and to have everything really good and to do what you can. But then um, if you do that well, <laughs> they don't know, you know, what it's like not to have a magical, like a fairy godmother that's always around and doing all that kind of stuff. So there's the tension. Um, anyhow, if we tie in this idea of ritual magic with the idea of women as witches, that women were accused of... Um, as being witches and the persecution of women as witches in Scotland and the European witch trials, and how women were practicing magic through being midwives or healers, and um, that ancient pra practice of pagan beliefs or ancient magic beliefs, and how that ties into the magic that we practice now in our modern world. And that it's women who are mainly responsible for creating this magic and inside the home and then that kind of connects um it's a, it's something I developed uh, while I was at school and it's called the hourglass theory and it, it's pretty simple it's this idea that um what happens inside the home that it's private and what concerns women inside the home is private and then outside of the world is more public which is um men's lives and that uh, comes from my professor Joan Johnson Fries, and um, it was a lecture that she gave, and I built upon that um, with the idea of the hourglass theory that what's happening inside the home, if it's it's good and positive, and women are being treated well, you know that you can see that in society, and then we take away uh, women's rights in whatever form that that is. That you know, society it's it's evident that there's more fractured and. Um, you can see it right now, every day, then turn on the news, that it's um, all of these different debates about women's rights, their own private rights of what they're doing with their body, and um, that it's become a very public debate. And um, so, yeah, this, this idea of um, the hourglass theory and um, the way we treat women and what's happening inside the home and it's considered private, and it also takes away from women. What's happening inside the home, you know, our domestic responsibility affects uh, our professional lives, and um, when we are trying to figure out the gender gap and where are women and why aren't all women in these kind of positions, I think that we really need to look back at the obvious, is that what's happening inside the home the domestic responsibilities are directly affecting why you're not seeing more women in these roles, or if they do attain these roles. Um, I think it was Anne-Marie Slaughter where she talked about uh, that, you know, she did attain the role, but even though she had teenage children, that um, she wanted to really focus on her family. And so how do we mitigate that? I think we have to look a lot um, more closely at um, the different you know, work balance, um, how, how work is structured for women and, um, really understand that the childcare responsibilities are there 
and that it's not realistic to have kids that get out of school at 1.30 for parent-teacher conference or they're never in school for whatever this holiday or that holiday or spring break or whatever, and then expect that women are going to be able to participate in the workforce um, because even if you were to get off of work at 5 o'clock, which is considered pretty good and pretty early, then, you know, kids have to be in some sort of after-school program and they're, from what I've seen over the years, very subpar, substandard, but they're expensive. And then that doesn't even begin to address um, summer camp. Summer camp um, where I live at the YMCA, which is, you know, supposed to be pretty reasonable. I think it's around three $350 a week, a week. That's if you can get a space. So if you have two kids, you know, $700 per week just for camp. And that's if you can get a space. Where I live, there's a lottery where parents line up just to try to get a space for camp. And I think that um, the way that society is structured, where kids are not in school, obviously, three months of the year, two and a half weeks Christmas break, a week or two spring break, and then early days every week, that it's not set up for women to be able to partic participate in the workforce without having, I go into it in the book, Astrofeminism, a New Lens on Space um, for Earth's Restoration, about this fictitious, um, mythical fairy godmother that um, not everybody is going to have a woman in the family that is unencumbered and completely free, that is able to just take your kids and pick them up and take care of everything, particularly when you're living in somewhere like Los Angeles where it's really spread out and people live, you know, far apart. Even if you are in this mythical um, let's pretend you're in Scotland in this village and your mom does live right up the street. Well, maybe she's not retired 100% and is still struggling with trying to make ends meet. It's kind of like we have this idea in society that, that um, you know, there's always going to be someone around to take care of. It's not just children, but um, care responsibilities. and But that's not always the way things look for everyone. And so I think I see it as, um, on a larger scale, as a policy choice, and that these um, th things need to change and that have to change in a bigger way um, before we can really see change, and you know, that's unfortunate, but um, I want to get back to this idea of women practicing magic and creating magic in the home, and if you've ever been to a home where there aren't women or a female-centric kind of um, energy. You know, it definitely feels different and empty. And I'm not, again, saying that it's specifically tied to men or women because I have some um, friends that are males that are fantastic and fabulous and um, can put together more of a magical display than I ever could. So, um, yeah, I really think that's important to emphasize that it's not so much about being um, male, female. It's about this female-centric energy, um, what we take away with it. And when we weave together the threads of women's roles in ritual magic and the historical persecution of women, that innocent women who were accused of being uh, witches, I focus primarily in Scotland and the European witch trials, um, I think that cover a pretty profound narrative about the enduring power and resilience of women's magic. Mm, the, the witch hunts were such a dark period, marked by fear and misunderstanding, targeting women who were often the keepers of ancient knowledge, midwives, healers, and wise women. And these women practiced what some would refer to as magic, but in essence it was an intimate understanding of nature herbal remedies and the cycles of life and death and their work was rooted in beliefs and ancient practices that honored the earth and its rhythms and this tradition stretches back to the dawn of human society and I think that creating spaces within the privacy of the home women engage in this form of ritual magic by in subtle ways and more profound, but creating spaces filled with warmth and love and the potential for the extraordinary. Spaces where the mundane can touch the magical. Like whenever I move out of the place that I'm in and I 
just look at it without all of the decor and decorations and it's just an empty room and you think wow how did I make this feel so magical and it felt so special and there was so much love in this space and I think that's what women again not all women <laughs> not all women and um yeah so women can bring this warmth and this love and this good feeling into a space and um I think it's just important to acknowledge that historically and culturally that this domain is influenced by women and women our touch, our intuition, and our creativity. And um, because that feels to say a woman's touch, I'm sure now that would be considered offensive because everything is considered offensive. But that magic that we bring into the home, because it's there's no monetization, I think that it's it's interesting because it's disregarded, but then on the other hand, that's what marketing, um, they try to use that feeling to get us to purchase things to recreate that magic. And so the vital role that women play in making a home feel like there's love, um, we don't get paid for it, but it's, it's interesting because our time is free, but the time that it takes to create that and not to take away from work or other responsibilities isn't free. So you have that. That's another example of the tension that women um, are struggling with of how to create a home that feels magical for their family. And again, not tied to children because you could be what people say now, a plant mom or a cat mom, but I can assure you that being a plant mom is nothing like being a mom mom of a human child um, or a cat mom. <laughs> it's not the same. But when you go, quote, home for the holidays or you visit a home where this magic is palpable or, on the other hand, where the magic is absent, where the rituals and the care that infuse daily life with wonder and they're present, isn't that the best feeling of why you go home for the holidays, and then if they're not there, if they're missing, that's what you feel, you feel the difference, that there, there's an emptiness there. And the idea behind what is this magic, well, it's the creation of a nurturing, imaginative, loving, giving, safe environment. It's a testament of feminine energy and our historical connection to nature and healing and the spiritual and the practice of domestic magic. It's a lineage that traces back to those ancient healers and wise women. So it's through this idea that I hope to help connect the persecution of women as witches it's not just a fear of the individual, but a fear of that feminine power to create and transform and influence. And, you know, despite centuries of suppression, this power endures within the walls of homes and apartments and cars and vans. Oh, gosh, I wish I didn't read and I didn't know as much, but there are so many children in the United States right now that are living in their car and I follow some of them um, on, on social media or in the news, I'll see stories. And it is incredible to me, women who are unhoused, who are living in a shelter or living in a car or staying on a couch, the magic that they're still able to create for their kids, that they're still able to try to transform whatever the experience is and to create a space of love and resilience and that's the magic that women bring into our lives and you know through recognizing and honoring this I think we claim a heritage of magic that enriches our existence and that's really the shared human experience on my cool list I already talked about Northwood and, well, I talked about what I talked about, but whatever. 
on my cool list, I want to talk about. I'm I'm not I'm going to get through this without crying. It's a movie that I didn't see, and I kind of know what's going on in the film world because of where I live and what I do in all of my different interests. I've told you guys before that for fun I make um, direct, right and direct short horror films from a female perspective, and so. I found this movie and I was really surprised that I had not never heard of it. Not even a little bit, not an inkling. Of course I know who Brie Larson is. I love her. So this film that I want to talk about, it's called Room. That's all. Room. R-O-O-M. And it was in 2015. And then whenever I have these periods of time where I think, how come I didn't know about that? And I go, what was happening around that time, 2015? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's why there's like certain three-month, six-month periods of my life that will be like, oh, it's just like, what happened? Oh, yeah, that happened. So, Room in 2015, I think what's really important about this is it's based on a novel by Emma and then Donoghue. Um, yeah, so it's based on a novel by Emma Donoghue, and I looked her up, and she's absolutely amazing if you want to just look up someone cool. So Emma also wrote the screenplay for Room. And I don't want to give away too much of the story. First of all, it's not a happy movie. It was very difficult to watch. But important in this, um, I bring it up in, in this episode, in this context, because it's really about how women can go through just about anything and the power of love and the desire to create magic for your kid is like um, this film, of all the films I think I've ever seen, I think this one just, I don't know, it hit me really hard. <sighs> I'm going to get through this without crying. Okay. So in Room, there's a story of a mom played by Brie Larson and her son. And they're living in a small room. And... They've been there for a while, and they, the little boy doesn't know anything about out what's life like outside of this room, and so I'm not going to tell you the story because I don't want to give it away, but I thought this story was so incredible, and Brie Larson, I mean, the way that she plays this role, this is what I see having grown up in Hollywood, what makes a difference as a true actress is the range to make you believe that she was there and it was really happening and that you're just happened to see it and that you never felt for a minute like she was reading any dialogue, like you just were there and it felt, I think her performance was so extraordinary. I think she won the Academy Award for this, but um, you felt like you were like, like it was very voyeuristic, like you just were seeing something that you shouldn't see. And that's what I think at its best, the power for um, art to transform your experience. And so you felt like you were in this room. And this idea about uh, resilience, that she creates this universe for her child and that she's not limited I mean, she is limited in, in the story, in the space, but she's not limited in terms of her imagination and her love and how to create a sense of normalcy under, you know, these circumstances. And the depth of maternal love and the lengths that a mom will go to ensure her child's survival and well-being. And I think that um, it's just a story that if, you're, if you, if you want to watch something that is profound um, the ideas of home and safety and dark situations and the wonder of childhood the, the emotional depth and the authenticity on on this um, this performance it's much more than a film and so that's gonna be it on my cool list because I think whatever else that I think is cool I already talked about way <laughs> way too long and um I will mention again um, that this episode of the Space Witch podcast is brought to you by Link to Live In. And their message is to enable people to travel more. And if you go to Link to Live In, L I V I N, 
martinmartin.com. Your promo code is Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, and you'll have a 10% discount um, with their standard 30-day free trial uh, linked live-in. And that's where you'll have a vetted peer professional stay at your place versus listing it to strangers. And you can also, as a guest, rent high-quality apartments from a vetted peer professional. Uh, I can't say enough good things about this organization. I talked with Natalie, the founder, at length yesterday and was very, very impressed with what they put together. So I highly recommend. Now, if you're a weirdo or you're creepy or you're gross, don't use the promo code Martin. I don't want my name associated with anyone weird or creepy or gross. <laughs> so only go to linkedlivein.com if you're not gross, weird, or creepy. Because that's the whole idea is that, you know, we're good, smart, trusted people that are going to share this concept. So hopefully you're not listening to me if you're weird, because that would weird me out. So yuck. <laughs> go away if you're weird. And if you're not weird, please keep listening. And um, thank you. I'll talk to you guys next time. Space Witch Podcast, where we talk about what's happening in outer space and witch stories. I'm your host, Layla Martin, and just remember, there are no witches in outer space. Mm-hmm.